Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Adhering Apologetics. Really pumped you're joining us today. We talk about philosophy, theology, apologetics, and all kinds of cool stuff. Um, we have Eric Hernandez. We're going to be talking about can substance dualism be defended? So Eric, what's up? How's it going? Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me on. Good. Are, are you surviving down in Texas? Because I'm in Virginia right now and it's like crazy hot and I can't imagine like how bad it would be like down there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's always hot over here. So <laughs> I usually stay indoors if I can help it. <laughs> understandable but today we're gonna be talking about um can substance dualism be defended just like talking about like what is substance dualism and looking at objections from like, different views and like the philosophy of mind like idealism or panpsychism um before we get into that eric just talk a little bit about a little a little bit about like who you are and what you do yeah uh, my name's eric hernandez i'm the uh, apologetics lead for the baptist journal convention of texas uh which encompasses anything from uh um, putting together three annual, what we call the unapologetic evangelism conferences and just doing trainings or teachings with churches, uh, pastors, youth leaders, um, going to college campuses, doing, giving talks or lectures, or even doing uh, debates or having the privilege of online interactions with, uh, fine people like yourself. You're so kind. And I appreciate you dealing with my bad lighting and my zit across my nose. You know, it's just like <laughs> second day of classes and it's like I'm a mess right now. But we had to talk about substance dualism. So I, I really can't complain. Um, so let's just start off with like, tell us a little bit about like, how did you become a substance dualist? And like, what kind of drew you into the position of where you're now a substance dual here? Yeah, so great question. So, um, well, uh, for those who, who maybe have heard my backstory, um, uh, and to try to keep it brief, basically my freshman year of college, I, I intentionally took a class from uh, an atheist philosophy professor who was known for being um, antagonistic towards Christianity. And um, one one day, the pivotal moment, really, day in class for me was when he basically brought up uh, an alleged objection where he basically held up a, a pill um, <clears throat> and said, you know, suppose I have an antidepressant pill here. Uh, if I take this pill, then it has a power to change the states of what Christians would call something like a soul and basically starts uh, asking rhetoric questions. Well, how can something physical affect the non-physical and yada, yada. And then basically says, well, uh, the answer is because there is no soul and there is no afterlife. There's no heaven, no hell. We're just a physical. Um, now, uh, up until that point in my life, I had heard a lot of complaints against Christianity, but that's all they amounted to. You know, if someone, for example, says, well, I don't like uh, this or that passage in the Old Testament, well, that wouldn't prove Christianity false. Um, but here was for the first time in my life, I heard an objection that if true would mean that Christianity was false. And basically because if uh, scripture says, Paul says, if there is no resurrection, then our hope's in vain. Well, by the same token, I would argue that if there's no soul, there can be no resurrection. And thus, Christianity would be false. So um, being the kind of person that I was, you know, I couldn't just ignore the objection. So I basically rolled up my sleeves and got my hands uh, dirty with some editor. And that's when I came across the work of, of my favorite guy today, uh, J.P. Moreland, who has just been mm -hmm. such a blessing uh, in my life. Uh, even before, before I met him, you know, just getting my hands on anything I could uh, of his stuff and um, just began learning and, and studying this stuff. And then... Uh, admittedly, growing up, I was what you would call a trichotomist, uh, to make a distinction here with substance dualism. <clears throat> so uh, some, some definitions, perhaps. So substance dualism it can essentially be described as a view of, when you, when you look at the word dualism, dual means basically two-ism. So um, substance dualism is the idea that there's two things at play here. There is an immaterial substance, which we would call the soul, 
and then there is a physical body, um, and there are different variations or flavors of substance dualism. But basically, to try and keep it brief and 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 simple, substance dualism says there's two main things here: there's a body, and then there's an immaterial substance. Now, a trichotomous view, which I would say most um, your average churchgoer would. So, so here's where it gets a little, a, a little not tricky, but if you're not familiar with the language, here's where it can get tricky. <clears throat> Usually, when I when I say I'm a substance dualist, uh, a typical question I get um, from your average believer is, "Well, so you don't do you not believe in the spirit? You know, you believe in a soul and a body. Do you not believe in the spirit?" Um, yes, I believe in a spirit, but I would say that the spirit is a faculty or or a compartment, if you will, of the soul. So the trichotomous view would say that there are three things that are, for lack of a better word, separate, uh, perhaps three substances, if you will, even though I wouldn't, I wouldn't say the body's a substance, but just for the sake of conversation, there's three things. There's a body, there's a soul, and there's a spirit. Well, I'm saying there's just a body and a soul, and within the soul, you have these different faculties such as mind, spirit, and things of that nature. So uh, uh, what what kind of shifted me from a trichotomous view, thinking there are three individual things, to a substance dualist view, thinking there are only two types of things, is because essentially, so let's say that the spirit is your faculty, it's, it's a faculty that you communicate with God. So for example, suppose I were to ask you, what part of your body tastes? Is it your tongue? Does your tongue taste or do you taste? Well, it's a trick question because the, the right answer would be, I taste through my tongue. So I use my tongue's taste buds in order to taste, but I'm the one tasting. I'm just using my tongue to do it. In the same way, if, if your spirit is that faculty of your soul through which you communicate with God, then you would say, I, the soul, am communicating with God by way of the faculty of my spirit. But note that I can do this because the spirit is a part of my soul. Just like I can taste through my tongue because it's part of my body, I can't use your tongue to taste. I have to use mine because, uh, you know, it's already part of me. So uh, it's not something separate, if you will, from my body. In the same way, the, the spirit is not something separate from uh, my soul. It's a part of my soul. And in that case, there's only one captain of the ship, if you will, and it's my soul. And it drives and utili utilizes everything else that's a part of me, be it my body, my spirit, my mind. And whatnot. So, for that reason, I, I would say I, I'm a substance dualist. My soul is me, the self, and that soul has a bunch of faculties and compartments to it. And one of those faculties would be the spirit. So, the spirit is not something separate from the soul. If it were, then when my spirit prays, is it me, my soul, or my spirit? You know, well, no, I'm praying. Well, if, if, but if it's my spirit that prays, and it can't be me if I'm a soul. You know, so in other words, I, I'm either having to jump from one thing to two, but then you have like more than three and it gets even more complicated. So it, it's it's best to just say I am a soul and within my soul, there's different uh, there's different compartments or faculties, if you will. And one of those is my spirit. Mm. Yeah, that's super fun. So my next question for you then is like in your view, Eric, like why do you think substance dualism is like the superior view? Like it looks like let's say that like maybe like you can be like a Christian or atheist and you're say, yeah, you know, like consciousness or whatever that is. Like, it's not just something that's just a product of my brain. Now we got all these different views on the table. Um, you know, like we're gonna talk about like idealism or panpsychism later. And there's like the Christian physicalists. Like, it's like, what, what makes substance dualism superior um, to the other things on the market in your opinion, Eric? Yeah. So good question. Um, 
Well, uh, a few things. So, so first, what is a soul? I, I would define the soul is uh, an immaterial substance that is the possessor of consciousness. And it's a thing that enlivens a body, it animates the body, and, and at development, it's what forms the body. Um, so <clears throat> when I say, uh, when, when I use the word soul, we can say that this is synonymous or it is synonymous with, with the self. So I, the word I is an indexical word that refers to something. When I use the word I, I'm referring to me, the soul. Um, so given that there's two things at play, the word I refers to the soul, not the body. Um, and the reason basically I would hold to substance dualism over anything else, um, well, depends on what aspect you want to, you want to touch on it. Mm -hmm. But one, one, one thing we can say is, you know, when you Occam's razor would, would say that you don't want to, um, multiply hypothesis needed. And I would say substance dualism provides the best explanation for it. Um, now, as you said, we'll get to later, an idealist could probably say the same thing, and that, that's a, a different like, – we can touch that when we get there. But uh, basically, substance dualism, I would say, explains a lot of things. Um, <clears throat> anything from the uh, – from a Christian perspective, uh, the possibility of disembodiment. You know, there's this um, – when you look at the, the Jewish belief, uh, especially the, the when you looked at what the Pharisees believed, there was this uh, – what um, – I believe it's John Green who he wrote a book and I forget the name of it, uh, but basically looks at the Old and New Testament and goes through um, biblical passages and what they would have believed about the afterlife. And he he has what 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 he calls a a two part eschatology, where there was this intermediate state where once I die I continue to exist but I'm disembodied. Um, it's what Paul refers to when he talks about. Um, this earthly tent being destroyed and then putting on a, a, a heavenly body, later glorified a heavenly tent. So there's this intermediate state that is prior to the final resurrection, which means I don't cease to exist. I continue to exist. And then at the final resurrection, then that's that's the, the second step of the eschatological process, if you will, where now I have a glorified body. So I think from a Christian perspective, it explains those uh, uh, quite well. <clears throat> um when we also see that there's this correlation between the mind and brain. Um, and, and this goes into things like one, one of the oddest objections that I think that people have towards the soul, because, and, and tell me when to stop here, uh, wherever you want me to either mm -hmm. slow down or unpack more, whatever. Um, some people will say, well, we know that in cases of things like Alzheimer's, if I have certain brain damage to certain regions of, uh, you know, my brain that are correlated with memory, then it affects, you know, the way I think or the way I can recall thoughts or memories and things like that. And somehow they think this is some kind of an epiphany that would show that there is no soul. It's all something in the brain. But but uh, what strikes me as odd is, first of all, the people who usually bring this up as an objection say it as if no one's ever thought about this in the history of philosophy of mind, as if, you know, like, wait a minute, you're telling me that if you hit me over the head really hard, I might forget some things <laughs> like no hmm. way, like like write a paper about this, please. Like this is unheard of. Uh, but of course, even in Aristotle's day, they knew, well, no, you know, you hit someone over the head, your cavemen would have known this, you know, it, it, something in the head region affects your conscious states. <clears throat> um, but this wouldn't prove that there's no soul. It just proves that there's a correlation much like detuning a guitar or popping a guitar string shows that there's a correlation between that and the music I'm trying to play, but it wouldn't follow from this that therefore, my music is inside of the guitar or is nothing more than a guitar. Obviously, there's just a, a correlation and a cause and effect dependency relationship between the two. 
Um, <clears throat> when we look at other things such as uh, the features and nature of consciousness this is where it gets, you know, really exciting for me, where it goes to show there has to be something more than the physical at play. So there's there are certain features of consciousness that are simply not true of anything physical. In other words, uh, you could describe everything that ex that exists that is physical. You can describe it 100 percent, everything about it without ever appealing to any type of conscious properties. Um, so, uh, um, you know, I, I could describe, you know, shapes and sizes, but I won't ever have to appeal to consciousness. Uh, so so there are certain things true of consciousness that are not true of physical states. Uh, for example, um, my my belief that grass is green is a conscious state. It's a belief, which is a state of consciousness. But no, nothing physical is about or of grass being green. That's a mental state. Um, conscious subjects possess those kind of properties. Physical uh, uh, things don't possess those kind of properties. Um, you you look at at what's called Leibniz's law of identity, which basically says. If two things in question are the same, then whatever is true of one is going to have to be true of the other and vice versa. Um, Eric, I can't hear you. Um, there? Anyone watching? Oh. You're back. We lost you there for a minute. I think you're back now. So Okay, um, yes. Sorry, where did I leave off of? Um, you're just looking at the law of identity, and then I lost you there for a moment. Okay. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry, my soul was briefly stepped out. Um, so, law of identity. Leibniz's law of identity. Basically, if two things are the same, then whatever's true of one is true of the other. So, if I said Eric Hernandez is the same person as a guest on your show, then I'm just using two different referent titles to refer to the same person. So, um, because of that, whatever's true of Eric Hernandez is going to be true of your guest because, again, they're the same person. But if I can find one thing true of your guests, that's not true of Eric Hernandez and vice versa, then they're not the same thing. The typical uh, example I use is suppose you walk into a lab and you see two bottles of clear fluid and one says water, but let's say another one has a label ripped off um, and you don't know what it is, but let's say that was chemical X. Well, um, applying Leibniz's law of identity, you look at the properties they have and you notice that um, they both have the property of being a clear fluid. So you think, well, so far they must be the same substance. But then you turn over the bottle that has a label ripped off, and on the back, there's another label that says caution flammable. And you think, ah, okay, so um, I know that water's not flammable. Therefore, even if I don't know what chemical X is, at the very least, I know that they can't be the same substance because I now have something true of one that's not true of the other. Now, with that in mind, if there is no soul, then consciousness, if it exists, is going to have to be either reducible and or identical to something physical like the brain. But we know that's simply not true, and it's easy to show that. Um, take a state of my mind like my thought or my belief. My thoughts and beliefs can be true or false, but it makes no sense to say that a region or group of neurons firing in my brain is true or false. Um, mm -hmm. my, my belief or my thought that I'm talking to you right now, uh, let, uh, contrast that with say, you know, the state of my brain, which can weigh three pounds, my brain can weigh three pounds, but my thoughts and my belief that I'm talking to you right now, doesn't weigh three pounds. Uh, my brain can be seven inches long, but the smell of a rose or the taste of a banana, which is a mental state, it's a sensation. Those aren't my, uh, the taste of banana is not seven inches long. It doesn't even make sense to, to, to ask the question. Um, so there are things true of my mind that are not true of my brain and vice versa. And all the properties of my brain are physical things and all the properties of my mind are non-physical things. 
And given Leibniz's law of identity, and we would just need one example of this, it would show that the mind and brain are not the same thing. And I would argue that consciousness is not physical. So basically what you now have here is this is consciousness existing, but not being not possessing any physical properties, but it still needs to be grounded in something. As uh, Dr. Moreland says, uh, thoughts have thinkers. You know, th thoughts don't just float around in the air. When I say, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the thought that grass is green, someone possesses that thought. That's me. Well, what what am I? Well, the word I, as I said earlier, refers to me, the soul. So when I say that I have a thought, I'm literally saying is my soul that is possessing these conscious states, beliefs, and properties. Um, so my thoughts and beliefs are in my mind, which is part of which is a faculty of my soul, not a faculty of my brain. Again, going back to the guitar, there's a correlation, but correlation and dependency doesn't establish identity, that they're the same thing. It just shows, well, a correlation. So um, for, for those reasons and more, again, you would need something, some immaterial substance that is possessing these properties, namely the soul. You have conscious states uh, being different than physical states, so they're not the same thing as a brain. And then you have the biblical uh, aspect and verses, which we didn't get into, but you know, suffice it to say that there's... Uh, um, lots of, of, of biblical passages which refer to the immaterial states of a person, uh, talk about disembodiment, you know, even Paul where he says, you know, there's a guy, whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know, which at least goes to show he believed that there was a disembodied state and believed this could happen. You have Samuel uh, uh, being conjured up by the, by the witch of Endor. Uh, where you have um, this, uh, you know, talking to the dead, which again would go to show a, a disembodied state. Lots more passages I can go to, but suffice to say, I think substance dualism is the best, the best explanation for all the things I've said and more. Yeah, that's super great. And I think we'll get, because there's a question there that we'll get to in a little bit about like biblical support for substance dualism. Um, but like one of the main worries with substance dualism is the interaction problem. So it's the idea of we have like, well, there's like this immaterial like consciousness that we call like our soul. And we have like this physical brain um, and they seem to be dependent. We're not dependent, but they seem to be interacting somehow with each other. Like our brain states in some sense relate to our mental states and vice versa. But then it's like, well, how? Like it, it just seems like, like given substance dualism, maybe we'd be able to like detect this at um, this difference with maybe like the law of conservation of energy or something. So like, how would you respond to this interaction problem, Eric? Of, like how does this like immaterial mind soul interact with the brain? Yeah. So, so, um, so, uh, you know, you did say that it's a concern. You know, usually if someone were to say what's a concern, I would say, what what's concerning about it? Uh, you know, what what's the big deal about it? Um, yeah. Suffice to say, I, and I know that's not how you meant it, but, you know, people usually present it as if it's somehow an objection. Uh, a few things to say here. Um, um, for, well, the first thing I'm going to say is just my, my, uh, my own thought here doesn't have necessarily any weight one way or the other, but I don't sleep about the interaction problem because it's to, there is no problem if anything it's it's a it's a challenge it's it's a something to think about but i'll, I'll put it this way <clears throat> if um one way to show that it's not an objection you know especially when people pose it as an objection one of the first answers i gave is well suppose i said i don't know what follows Nothing, <laughs> you know, mm. no, nothing stands or falls on on whether or not I can answer the the interaction problem. And for those listening, um, like you said, it, how how does a soul interact with the body? Um, the arguments that I would give for the soul, for the existence of the soul, are ontological arguments, whereas a question of how the soul interacts with the body is more of an epistemic question. So mm. the epistemic question doesn't again 
do anything to invalidate the ontological arguments I would give for the existence of the soul. In other words, whether or not I can answer the question does nothing, you know, against the arguments in favor of the existence of the soul. It's kind of like saying, uh, okay, well, if if um, if you if you if you can drive your car, you know, by putting it in the ignition and turning it on and driving it, but prove okay, that proves that your car works. But how does it work? How does a car function? Well, I could say I don't know, but it doesn't mean therefore I can't drive a car, or therefore my car doesn't exist, or anything like that. I would say the same thing with the soul and body. Um, <clears throat> now that being said, uh, um, which again. It, it bears no weight. It's an epistemic question that does nothing to uh, affect or, or defeat, much less prove wrong the ontological arguments. And then um, nothing stands or falls, like I said, on it. <clears throat> now, nevertheless, uh, some other things now can be said. Now, if I were to try and answer the, the uh, uh, how, um, well, there, there's been lots of answers put forward. But the first thing I'd say is it's, it's, a, it's a basic action or what you would call a primitive action. It's, it's a direct uh, A to B kind of cause. Because if someone's asking how does a soul interact with the body, if by that they're asking for some type of intermediate mechanism, how does A interact with B? Well, suppose I were to postulate some entity C. A interacts with B through entity C. Well, then, then then, that just kind of raises another question. Okay, well, then how does A interact with C in order to interact with B? Well, then I can say, well, let's say by some D. So A interacts with D to interact with C to interact with B. And you see the problem. We can keep doing this till the cows come home, and it would lead to an infinite regress. So um, throwing in Occam's razor once again and just uh, uh, going uh, just even further, it's just traditionally, it's just been thought of as, as a direct A to B interaction, uh, what, again, what's called in philosophy a primitive action or a basic action. Um, the soul just directly interacts with the body. There's no intervening mechanism. Now, I don't think, at least for our purposes here, and, and again, I don't, I don't lose sleep, you know, for me, that's, that, that's sufficient to say, yeah, it's, it's a direct type of interaction. Um, to give to give a, a, a an analogy that may or may not be the best one to give, it, you can think of magnets, uh, a magnetic force interacting with metal. You know, there's no intervening mechanism by which a magnetic force attracts metal or moves a metal. It just does it directly. Even if I can't explain it any further, it doesn't prove or disprove whether or not you know magnets you know can pull metal. Um, and, and you have something physical and some magnetic field, which I would argue is not physical, though it may be, again, correlated with something physical. It's not itself something physical. Um, you have the, this interaction taking place. Uh, um, I've, I've also heard Moreland say, you know, and the, again, there's, there's a lot of great answers out there. I, I don't put my finger on one of them in particular, but if anything, just share them. Um, <clears throat> another one would be that um, that the the mind or the, the soul and body the, the, it's not a closed system so there would it wouldn't break any laws of of physics to say that the soul somehow would even create energy to to make something happen in the body if it's an open system um aside from that i would also say uh, i've heard Moreland use the example or the illustration um the amount of energy that takes place say at the hoover dam um Let's say there's just one switch. I go to the Hoover Dam and I flip the switch. And when I flip the switch, a massive amount of energy is released from the water that's in that's in the Hoover Dam. Now, compare the amount of energy it took to flip the switch. Uh, compare that to the amount of energy that was released after I flipped the switch. It, I mean, it's just a huge difference. 
And to try and find the energy to flip the switch in all of that energy of what's released in the Hoover Dam, I mean, it would it would almost be insignificant or lost within, you know, trying to look where that where that came from. So if the soul did create some some energy, I would it would be comparable to that where you probably couldn't even detect it or it would be just so insignificant. Um, I've heard even someone now say that the soul could just kind of direct the energy that's already there in the brain, the electricity. Uh, I haven't looked too deep into it because, again, I don't necessarily sleep over it. There, there. I think there are many sufficient answers out there. Someone once sent me a paper uh, written by this guy who is like who who like is a philosopher and a, a physicist and knows his stuff. I I got like about two pages into like this long article and I thought, sure, sounds good. <laughs> you know, um, sounds good to me. But yeah, that that's in, in a nutshell. I would answer it that way. So just to recap, um, one. I don't think it is a problem. Two, even if I said I don't know, nothing center falls. Uh, three, it's a direct um, A to B interaction. There's no intermediate intervening mechanism. Uh, four, it could be that even if energy is created, it's insignificant compared to what happens in the body, kind of like flipping the switch on Hoover Dam. And then maybe four and five, some people have come up with really smart formulations that, you know, way over my head that that um, respond to those. And I've heard someone now say, well, the, the soul can just kind of direct the energy that's already there. It doesn't have to create anything new. Mm. That's super great, Eric. I appreciate that. Um, so what we'll do now, because I think it's kind of related, is like talk about panpsychism. Um, so it's this idea of let's say like, well, yeah, there is this hard problem of consciousness and like consciousness isn't just reducible to like material brain states. Um, so let's say the consciousness in some sense is like fundamental. So like un I'm not a panpsychist. I don't really understand it that well, but like somehow like underlying like matter is also this consciousness. Like it's a feature of matter to also be conscious when you get enough matter together and like a sophisticated thing, like the brain, um, then we got consciousness. Um, so like my friend Emerson green talks about, it, I was like, it's just like physicalism, but granting like the hard problem or something like that. Um, so I wonder then like, in your mind, like what makes substance dualism better than to say like panpsychism? Um, because you say like maybe the panpsychist might get to get around the interaction problems. Maybe they have like a win here over like a substance dualist in terms of like a simplicity or maybe like explanatory power. Um, so in short, just like Eric, why would you prefer prefer substance dualism over panpsychism? <clears throat> um, yeah, good. So, so a few things uh, to be said here. So, so what is panpsychism? Kind of like, I mean, basically what you explain it, the best, the best uh, explanation I've seen is in a meme where this guy just, you know, those, you know, <laughs> those little eyes you can get uh, from craft stores. He basically got those yeah. little shaky eyes and just glued them onto <laughs> like, you know, glued them onto stuff and, you know, <laughs> just like glued them onto anything you can think of, you know, like a remote and said, and so I can, um, and just put little eyes on like, uh, uh toasters and stuff like that. So yeah. it's basically the idea that, um, I, so for one, I think panpsychism is ad hoc. Um, I know one of the, uh, a more popular level proponent of this has been, uh, Thomas Nagel and mm -hmm. basically Nagel sees the problem and basically says, look, Guys, and he, by the way, for those who don't know, Thomas Nagel is an atheist, uh, a naturalist. And he basically says, we know consciousness exists. We know that you can't get consciousness by simply rearranging physical stuff together, um, like by Lego bricks. And that's my, my illustration, not his. You know, you don't get like Lego bricks together, re, you know, get a really complicated Lego collection, put it in a really complicated structure, and all of a sudden you have consciousness. Um, because consciousness isn't the kind of thing that just pops up like that, you know, that which kind of deals with the the um, <clears throat> the question of supervenience or emergent properties. He says you can't get consciousness by just emerging like that. Um, so 
basically Nagel says, so what you're going to have to do is you, you're going to have to say consciousness has always been there from the beginning. Because mm -hmm. the thing with, uh, uh, with emergent properties is basically it, 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 I can't rearrange a red brick house. I can't rearrange a red brick house, add or take away bricks and put a certain structure. And from that, get the color blue. Because the color blue is not something I get from rearranging red bricks. It's, it's a different type of property. Consciousness would be the same thing. So in other words, blue would have to already be there. Nagel says, uh, um, and again, that was my illustration, not his, but Nagel says, same thing with consciousness. It's going to have to be there from the beginning. So he says, everything that exists, I mean, anything you can grab, is it already has conscious properties in it, uh, latent within it. You just have to get the right arrangement and structure. Now, what makes us different is that you're not getting something consciousness from something that didn't have consciousness there to begin with. On panpsychism, consciousness is already there. It just has to be unlocked, if you will. And that unlocking takes place. And again, that's my word, not his. That unlocking takes place by just rearranging the physical structure of these things that already have consciousness latent potentially within it. Now, I think that's ad hoc. Uh, I, I can applaud him for at least trying to be consistent in in – because he's basically admitting that consciousness has to be there from the beginning. Now, because he's an atheist, he says, well, it just it's just a brute fact, uh, which, again, I would say is ad hoc. Whereas a Christian would say, well, no, consciousness is fundamental and has always been there from the beginning. And, we, and his name is God. And he is the foundation, sustainer of all things, creator of all things. So on the Christian view and the Pensacus view, consciousness is there from the beginning. It's just that on the Christian view, you have God who is... Uh, the thing that gives everything else consciousness is the necessary, metaphysically, logically necessary being that exists, has always existed. Uh, whereas Thomas Nagel says, well, it's just got to be there because how else can you explain it? You know, and let's not go to God because he's said himself, I don't want God to exist. So I, I think it becomes ad hoc and substance dualism becomes a much better explanation there. Yeah, I think I have a lot of sympathies with you, like especially like with like an atheistic version of panpsychism, um, because it, it seems like like they're going to be proposing like, well, yeah, there's this fundamental like matter or something, but there's also like this fundamental consciousness, and there's like these two things, and then, like the theist can be like, hey, we just say let's just explain everything with consciousness, um, not even you don't even have to be an idealist to say that like God's a perfect mind, um, and that's how we get our our, our story, like it just seems simpler. Um, and then maybe like theistic, like panpsychism, like I had you, I think her name is Joanna Leidenhag on um, a few months ago on the show talking like she's a panpsychist, but she's like, God gave the, the matter consciousness in a sense. So it's not there from in the beginning. It's just like the way God created it, which is like, okay, maybe, but it still just seems like, I don't know, panpsychism, panpsychism just seems very like counterintuitive to me. Um, do you have anything you want to add, Eric, or we can move uh, on? Well, well um, so I, I haven't. So the person you mentioned, I, I haven't uh, looked them up or heard of them. It's the first time I've heard of a Christian panpsychist. Uh, I could imagine there could be a theistic panpsychist. Um, I, I think it's, again, ad hoc. Now, I would say that um, – so when I was first studying this, I did – I did uh, uh, had the privilege – I think it was the first time I ever talked to Moreland over the phone. I did ask mm -hmm. him how – because I would hold to a traducian view of the soul – without getting, you know, bringing up another can of worms, but basically, um, and I pretty much asked him, how is this different than panpsychism or, you know, how is it not the same thing? Well, first of all, so on my view of the soul, it's, it's biological tissue that has conscious properties or, or what, what he calls conscious toady potentiality. Um, and again, without going into, into those kind of worms, whereas panpsychism says everything, not just biological matter or tissue, but everything, including this marker has conscious potential. 
at that point, I just, I, to me, there's a big disconnect. So, for example, um, if you were to get a, a starfish arm and sever it, um, that starfish arm has the potential to become another starfish. But it's easier to see how a starfish arm can become another starfish than to see how this marker can become a conscious living thing. I um, mean, you know, there's there, in my mind, there, it's just intuitive. There's a huge difference between the two. So whereas I would say, yes, everything that is uh, that is uh, biological, especially let's just stick with human uh, um, human tissue, biological matter. Um, this is how when a woman gets pregnant, you can have uh, this twinning effect where you have the uh, the the the, the fertilized egg, the baby, the person split and you have twins um, again. That's different than saying this marker can become twins or can become a conscious subject. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I would just reiterate, even if you had that theistic twist, it is still, I would argue, is, is ad hoc. I like how you describe it like panpsychism with a theistic twist. I, re I really like that, Eric. Um, so that's good. <laughs> um, so let's talk about idealism now. Good things. <laughs> You know, you're from Texas. You gotta have cool things. Um, so uh, let's talk about like idealism, and this is the idea that like, well, like everything is like conscious or like the product of consciousness. Um, so like, you know, like it'd be like, well, maybe like we're living in like side God's mind, um, like we're mind inside God's mind or something like that. Um, and you talked about like Occam's razor, like a little bit, like a while, but in the beginning of this interview, and like, I think the idealist would be like, yeah, like, let's get rid of this like mind independent matter that you're talking about. Like, come on, Eric, that, that's so like 20, 20th century of you. Come on, get into the new age <laughs> where we're, we're, we can get rid of this. Um, so it seems like, you know, like, so, what, so what's your kind of gripe against like idealism and why you prefer substance dualism? Yeah, so so I, I have much more sympathy. Uh, I, I'd sympathize much more with the idealist than I would with the panpsychist. So, um, in, in in a nutshell, again for those listening, uh, idealism would be that everything is dependent on mind, or everything is a product of the mind. Now, depends depending on what type of idealist you're talking about, I could agree or disagree. Now, uh, Ben Arbor, uh, uh, the late Ben Arbor, who passed away um, not too relatively long ago. Um, I, I once had a phone conversation with him and, and I asked him about panpsychism and what he thought. And he says, well, technically, Eric, every Christian is a panpsychist. And, and you know, when he said that, it just kind of clicked in my head. I mean, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, heresy. No, rewind. <laughs> Edit that out. He said every Christian is an idealist to some extent. And, and that's when it kind of clicked in my mind. Like, yeah, that, that's true. It, because if, if idealism is a view that everything is dependent or a product of the mind, well, then obviously God is an unembodied mind and everything that exists, it, 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 everything that exists owes its existence to him in one way or another. So, yes, everything is a product and dependent on a mind, namely God's mind. So in that sense, if you want to say everything is a product dependent on and sustained by a mind, namely God's mind, then sure, I, you can call me an idealist all day. I'm, I'm fine with that. But then the, the, there's a stronger form, if you will, of idealism that says that denies the existence of, of anything physical or material altogether and says, no, everything is just mental and there is no physical existence. <clears throat> um, now, I, I would say you definitely would want an idealist to argue these positions for himself. You know, don't don't take it from me, in other words. Um, but. I can say uh, one, one illustration I can think of is so wh when I'm having a dream, if you were to have a dream, if I were to have a dream, the people that exist within my dream, they're not physical things. Um, in my dream, I can interact with them. In my dream, I can hug them. 
But technically speaking, I'm not hugging anything physical. There's nothing physical there. Although in my mind, it's as if these things are physical and exist. Now, the the strong idealist, if you will, um, is going to say that that's kind of how reality is. Either we're in the mind of God or we're in the mind of some God or everything is just a a type of, and this is an oversimplification, but like a matrix stimulation where the, you know, this mm -hmm. marker isn't, isn't really there in a physical sense. It's, it's, it doesn't exist physically. It's just a mental, again, depending on what kind of idealist you talk to, um, it, it's a projection, it's an illusion, however you want to call it. Now, yeah, I, I think Occam's razor can kind of cut both ways here. And say, well, we don't need to posit anything physical if we can just say everything's mental. But but Occam's razor is more than just, you know, how many things can we lessen? It's also it's it's a tiebreaker. And, and I think there's not necessarily a tie here. And of course, they might say the same thing. But um, <clears throat> just as just as we would we would intuit and conceive of moral properties and attributes and moral things about the world, I think we uh, uh, are justified in the same way of intuiting the existence of, of physical things in the world. You know, I think this, I, I can feel this, it's physical and I don't have any reason to not believe that it exists as something physical other than the idealist coming to me and telling me that it's not really there or the strong idealist. Um, so yeah, I, I don't see why God would create a world of something that feels physical, looks physical, smells, tastes, everything physical, and yet it not be there and be physical. I, I just don't see an argument for that other than to say, and again, let an idealist argue for himself, but other than to say, well, you know, we don't need we don't need to postulate that. Let's just say everything's mental. Now, well, where I will sympathize with the idealist <clears throat> is you cannot everything at some point is going to have to point back to consciousness, which I think is, is, is quite fascinating. Um, because earlier I said, you know, you can describe everything in the in physical without alluding to consciousness, but then there's in one sense, the moment you begin to try and describe physical things as someone else, then you have to appeal to conscious states. For example, if I said, this is hard, what does it mean to be hard? Uh, well, you can talk about density and you can talk about these things, but how do we, how do we know what hardness or density is? Well, you have to experience it. Well, hardness is 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 an experience. It's a sensation, which is a mental state. So, in order to describe something or anything at all to someone else, I have to appeal to consciousness. So, what's interesting is that you can't even, you know, get away from consciousness, even when you're describing hmm. things that aren't conscious to someone else. So, if I say something's blue, well, I can't. That wouldn't make sense to someone who's colorblind or who's never who who was born blind or have never seen the color blue everything is going to point back to consciousness. Now, in that sense, again, I can, I can be sympathetic with the idealist, but again, I would say, but I think these things are actual features of reality that are there independent of our minds. Now, are they independent of God's mind? Well, no, but that's, but that's because nothing's independent of God's mind. Everything is dependent on God who is an unembodied mind. But yeah, I think these things are really there. God created them uh, physically. Um, and, and I think they're, and, and, I just shooting shooting from the hip here. <clears throat> um, when you think about the intermediate state, you know you hear about NDEs and you know people being disembodied and and yet coming back, you know, being resuscitated or whatever. I think that type of state would be more of an idealist 
state in the sense that we're talking about here. I think that when you exist disembodied prior to the final resurrection in this intermediate state, I do think in that sense, I think, yes, it is some type. And again, I know I keep opening just cans of worms here. So, mm-hmm. you know, just uh, I'll try to stop opening these. But yes, I think in that sense, it is type of it is a type of idealist picture reality of existence where I am existing without a body, but yet am still able to interact with other disembodied souls in some way that appears as if it's something physical. And again, without going too deep or, you know, dipping my toe into heresy somehow an accident, you know, I would say, you know, at best I'd say, yeah, that, that I could say is some type of an idealist state. Yeah. No, it's a lot of fun to think about. And like, I'm just going back to your color thing. Like even before I was really interested in like, like thinking about like the mind and stuff, I always thought about like, what's like, well, I see red there. But like, how could I, like, what if, like, Eric's over there and he sees, like, what I perceive as blue and that's what just really calls red. Like, like there's just no way yeah. you could, like, tell these things apart. Like, because, like, there is this, like, tr- this state of, this conscious state that's only true to you. And I, I just thought of that as you were talking. I was like, yeah, this is just kind of, it seems pretty, pretty, at least intuitively true to me. Yeah, yeah. So that that's really interesting that you bring that up. Um, Yeah, so that's... That- something like inverted qualia. So that's another feature of consciousness that I would say is not physical is that consciousness is, is, is a a first person private access kind of a thing, meaning only I have access to my conscious states. You don't now note that's different than saying only I have access to my brain states. In other words, if someone wanted to look at my brain, well, any, excuse me, gassy here, excuse me. I don't know what it was, (laughs) what I ate earlier. Um, but uh, any third-party observer can have access to my brain and my brain states, but no one else has access to my mind other than me, uh, a first-person observer versus a third-party observer. Um, I like what Moreland says. Uh, a neuroscientist can know more about my brain than I do, but can never know more about my mental life than I do. So when you go to the doctor and you go to, a, a, let's say, an eye doctor, and he wants to know what kind of glasses to give you, he asks you to look at these numbers or letters on a wall. But no, he has to do more than just look at your eyes. He has to ask you what you see. Because although he can look at your eyes, he can't look at your mental states and what you see. So when when you're looking at the number three at a distance and you close one eye and he says, what do you see? And you say, well, I see the number eight or I see the letter B. He doesn't laugh at you and say, wow, what an idiot. No, it's three. It's not in the number eight. It's not the letter B. No, he, he doesn't say you're lying. He believes you and then just writes down, oh, his eyes are bad at from this distance. In other words, he can't just look at your eyes to know what you're seeing. He has to ask you what you're seeing because your mental states are a product of your mind, not your brain or eyes. <clears throat> now, also again to what you're referring to. Yeah, inverted qualia. So I had a, I have a friend or well, I haven't talked to him in a while because, you know, since I moved. But at a job I used to work at, um, I used to work at a school <clears throat> and there were these uh, motivational posters, you know, all over the school, as, as you would imagine for any school. And there are, I think it was like a, a poster of Skittles or something like that. And, and it was, it, it, it had words like hope and, and um, I don't know, what are, what are other nice words to get, get the kids motivated these days? Hope and dream, dream and, you know, you know, shoot for the stars. Just things, those, those, yeah, words like that, but it, it was Skittles and then certain colors of the Skittles were rearranged. So like all the red Skittles said hope, right? And then like the yellow Skittles said, I don't know, dream or whatever. And, and I hadn't noticed that until I got close and looked at it. And I said, oh, they, it says hope and dream or whatever. And my friend says, where? And I said, right there. And he says, I don't see it. I said, right there, the red ones. He goes, these red ones? And he pointed to the yellow ones. I said, no, that's yellow. He goes, oh, 
these red ones? I'm like, no, that's green. I'm like, dude, are you colorblind? He's like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. snap. I was like, oh, snap. I didn't know that. And he was trying to hide it at first. I don't know if he was embarrassed. But long yeah. story short, um, there's there's different types of colorblindness. In fact, you can actually look it up. And if, if you want to, you can look it up. I'm kind of now curious. Um, if you can hear me ty typing. Um, yeah, you <laughs> but so so I, I had to look this up myself because it was just so fascinating to me that, OK, here it is. I don't know how to share if you want me to share or if you want me to send it you to you. You can share a screen. I do want to say um, we're wasting our time because Trinity Radio just proved God exists by saying if God does not exist, Eric Hernandez does not exist. But Eric Hernandez does exist, therefore God exists. So we're really just wasting our time. Wow. Like or Pritchett, whoever's chatting, they, they, they solved it. So we're wasting our time. But wow. you can share well, your screen and – we well, yeah, no, like I'm leaving now. Ones. I mean, this is good. This, <laughs> this is good stuff. No, well, and hey, Trino Radio, that that is, I love both those guys. Whoever it is, awesome, awesome guys. Okay, uh, don't show mm -hmm. these tips again. Um, sure I just want to say, like, as you try to pull this up, like, one of my best friends is colorblind. Um, to some degree, not like describing colors to him. It's like you can't, you just can't do it, and it's like it's just so hard to describe these things. Can you say, whoa? Oh, okay, can you see this one here? Can you see <laughs> yeah, that? You can, you yeah. So. I think he, his was, I think this one right here. Uh, so see how there's like three different types of colorblindness, but notice how like the reds and like the reds and greens just look yellow. And for mm -hmm. him, that's pretty much what it was. So it's going to do that thing again. Stop sharing. I guess Craig's wrong. You can't have a, an infinite uh, a set of things. Um, but yeah, <laughs> so basically um, that was when it first occurred to me that like he, his world is like almost like a Dr. Seuss kind of a world. Because he said everything that's red or green just looks like a different shade of yellow to him. So I was like, so what color What color is your blood? You know, what color are the stripes on, on the American flag? What color is grass mm -hmm. to you? How do you, and I even asked him, so when you, when you approach a stoplight, how do you know when to go? And he basically, he says he either looks at the order because now he knows what order, what color is what, yeah. uh, or he waits and looks at what the other cars do. So, um, so yeah, we both see the same thing that is, again independent of me or his perspective there is a color there that actually exists but he sees something different than i do because of something in the brain and and something in the eyes you know that 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 are not functioning like they should be functioning so so yeah i think inverted quality is definitely one of those things that would go to prove uh the immaterial nature of consciousness um substance dualism and i would say uh, you know could even be an argument against idealism but i'm sure they they might say the same in their case so yeah. <laughs> no you definitely just debunked it, idealism eric so um one last kind of like um direction i'd like to take this is just thinking about like there's that the question of like do babies have souls do animals have souls mm. um this is just something interesting to think about because like i think about like as christians we want to say like life begins at like conception so we want to say that like probably something like you know like an embryo has a soul um, but when they have this problem of like, well, how many people remember like what it was like to be conscious, like when they're an embryo and it, like, no one's going to raise their hands if they're honest. And like the same thing can be applied to like, what about, oh, okay. never mind, Eric. So, you know, no I'm joking, but Braxton already proved God exists. So it doesn't matter. Um, but like, so we have this worry of like, okay, well, no one does. So like, no one's really conscious at like at an embryo and like very few people, like one year old or like two year old, two years old. It seems like our consciousness almost seems to like develop as our brain develops. Um, and, like we already talked about like you know, like if I hit you in the head, doesn't that debunk substance dualism? And we went, we went through that objection. Um, but like, it seems like there are these like very close ties between like brain states and like our levels of consciousness. Um, so I guess my question for you is like, how do you approach that as like a substance dualist? Cause I, I'm guessing you'd want to say some sort some sort of story, like where God gives a person a soul at like conception, but then they're not conscious until they're like 
or like really like understanding things to like two, three years old. So like, what's going on here, Eric? Yeah. So, so the question about, so we're asking about baby souls, so to speak. Yes. Is that yeah. right? Or, or when the soul. So, um, <clears throat> so yeah, the, usually the way this question is asked to me is, um, when does a soul enter the body? Which you didn't ask it that way, but let me just, you know, uh, uh, tackle it this way. And, and for me that that's not the right question to ask on my view. So there's two different views of the soul. There's what's called the creationist view, not to be confused with creationism as in age of the earth kind of stuff, but there's a creation mm -hmm. view of the soul and the traducing view of the soul. Um, to oversimplify both, the creationist view of the soul, God looks at a fertilized egg and says, looks good enough to me. It looks like the right parts are there. Hey, uh, you know, you know, Gabriel or, you know, Michael, whatever, some angel, hey, zap that bad boy with a soul. So God, quote, puts a soul in a body. On the traducing mm -hmm. view, it's just that God has set up the world in such a way that when two things that possess soulish totally potentiality come together, there is what you would call a substantial change and a new a new soul as a substance comes into existence. So <clears throat> this is different. And this is where I asked Moreland about, you know, well, how does this differ from, from something else like panpsychism? It's because the, the body would be, the example he gives is like sugar and water. When you pour sugar and water and you stir it, it's now the sugar is now infused all throughout the water. So in the same way, my soul is infused, if you will, all throughout my, my biological matter, all throughout my body. So when I wiggle my finger and then I wiggle my toe, which you can't see me doing, but I'm doing, it's not as if my soul has to travel from the tip of my finger and then race down to my toe in order for me to move it. It's that my soul is omnipresent to my body, if you will. So um, that being said, when you have a sperm and egg meet, a substantial change occurs and, and, and a new substance comes into existence. Now, substantial change is different than a mere rearrangement of parts. Um, so, for example, to go a little bit deep here, when, when hydrogen and oxygen come together to form water, in a metaphysical sense, the hydrogen and oxygen cease to exist, and now a new substance emerges, namely water. And this is why you have water possessing new properties, because you now have a new substance. So water possesses the properties of wetness, whereas hydrogen and oxygen do not possess the properties of wetness, because those things have ceased to exist, and a new substance has emerged. You have a substantial change. In the same way, I would say it is with the soul. Now, um, <clears throat> that being said, so yes, the soul would be there from conception. When the sperm and egg meet, you have a new, a new uh, substantial change, named the new soul comes into existence. Now, that does not mean, however, that the, uh, that the embryo, this, this, uh, this new person, is conscious. So let me, let me explain that aspect. Part of what makes someone a person is that this soul possesses what, what we would call ultimate capacities. Now, there's a difference between an ultimate capacity and a first-order capacity. So I have the first-order capacity to speak English, which means not only do I have the potential to speak English, I can actually do it, and I've been doing it for the past, you know, uh, um, 45, 50 minutes. Um, but I also have the the ultimate capacity to speak French. Now, I don't know how to speak French other than like bonjour or oui, oui, only because I've, I've seen those in movies. Um, but, but I don't know how to speak French. So I have the ultimate capacity to do so, but I don't have the actual capacity to do so. Now, in the same way, in the same sense, 
um, a, a human soul has these ultimate capacities, but it doesn't mean that just because it has these ultimate capacities, therefore all these capacities are available as a first order capacity that I can on command do as I wish. So think about it this way. If I were to go into a coma, I'd still be a person even though I'm not conscious because I would still have the ultimate capacity to be conscious. I just need whatever's inhibiting my consciousness to, to take place. So in other words, there's something blocking that capacity from coming into fruition. I would say in the same way, when you have a, a, a new person come into existence by way of a fertilized egg, you now have a person, but it doesn't necessarily mean that this that this person is conscious. It may still be the case that it needs to develop the certain physical attributes and properties in order for the utilization of this ultimate capacity of consciousness to take place. So you have a person, mm -hmm. but it doesn't necessarily mean, therefore, it's conscious, just like when I'm asleep or in a coma. I'm a person and yet not conscious. So, um, so yeah, asking about, you know, whether or not, you know, we would remember what we were thinking in there assumes that we would have the actualized uh, capacity of consciousness as a first order while we're, you know, while we're embryos. I just don't think we do. That might not come till, I don't know when later, but it, it would come later on. And even then, I can't remember what I did, you know, an, an hour ago, much less, you know, when I was when I was uh, in my mother's room or whatever. But yeah, their their consciousness only comes after a certain stage, and even then, then you got to talk about okay, what what kind of properties or physical attributes do I need to even retain or or, or hold memories, you know? And that's a whole different subject. And when you mm -hmm. get people like me who have mental disorders like ADHD, which uh, for that, ironically, I can't remember what it is. I think it's a, a working memory. Um, that I can't register things like the average person can. So I tend to not be able to recall things as easy and I forget things really quick, which sucks. <laughs> yeah. It's what a world. Um, well, Eric, that's about all the time we have today. So you have anything else you want to like say before we start to wrap things up here? Um, yeah, no, just uh, keep me in your prayers. Uh, I haven't been on YouTube too much uh, for a few few reasons. One main reason is because uh, I've been asked to write a book by Texas Baptist. Um, like I said earlier, I work with Texas Baptist and, we're looking to come out with some new material on evangelism. And initially they had asked me to contribute to a book on evangelism, on sharing the gospel, but um, contribute an apologetics portion. But after talking um, about it, they said, well, why don't you just write your own book on, on just witnessing to non-believers? So I've been working on a book for witnessing to non-believers, and that's been taking like almost every single day for the past few months. So I've been really trying to hammer that out. Keep me in your prayers. I, I'm working on the final draft that i can work on to send in but uh yeah would definitely appreciate your prayers but that's why i've been i've been absent for for the most part is doing that that's like i said taking pretty much every day for the past few months yeah it's super great and we're looking forward to that we'll definitely keep you in your prayers eric um so thank you so much for coming on and talking about um substance dualism and all this fun stuff so it's been a lot of fun eric and thank you everyone you tuned in um the braxton thank you jesus converse con converse contender john dunphy um the always amazing Nick Quint and John, everyone else. Um, yeah, Eric, one last time. Thank you so much for coming on, man. It's been a lot of fun today. Hey, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And thank you, and thank you everyone for tuning in, and God bless.